All right. Uh, so the reading tonight is from uh, Mark chapter 7, and it's on page 7 of the scenes. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Impathatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. The more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of pre preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And that all, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Great to be here again. Justin's my name. Um, senior minister of the church. Welcome. I added to Stephanie's welcome. Um, again, wedding couples are here, by the way. Uh, second week out of three. And... Um, I assume that there might be a chance, certainly during supper, to say hi to somebody, and um, I basically promised them that you'd be nice, 
So you've got to be nice. Uh, that's the bottom line. Otherwise, you make a liar out of me. That's no good. And um, so can I, if you're getting married, by the way, and you're one of the couples who are doing the course, can you put up your hand? Is that all right? Okay, good on you guys. Welcome again. Welcome. You know, just welcome again. Sure, why not? That's it. Welcome. Yeah. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, look, I'm a trophy of grace, um, meaning uh, <clears throat> I stand here as a, a broken person uh, who's received the grace of God, and, 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 and he lifted me up. And um, there's no way around that. Uh, I hope that as a trophy of grace that I can show you something of the goodness of God. And my own story, by the way, is that, um, I don't know, as a teenager, I took God very seriously. The one thing I knew was that I couldn't treat this topic not seriously. I said, I stuck at people and said, oh, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I was like, no, no, there's a one area you can't not worry about. If there really is a God, then there can be no question greater, no issue more important. And I felt that, and I believe, in fact, what the Bible says about the holiness of God. Uh, and I got that. I understood that God had to be the ideal of morality. I, had to, I knew that he had to be the holy one, as the scriptures say. And I knew how far I fell short. And so I found myself, age 16, 17, and 18, trapped, actually, quite trapped, if I can put it this way, in a room, that's a metaphor, in a room uh, between the holiness of God and my own life. I knew that God was holy. I knew that he was the um, model of everything that was right and good, and I knew that he was just as well, and I knew how far I fell short. And so I felt a sense of despair while quite enlivened by the possibility of God, but trapped in a room, not sure whether God liked me or didn't like me, quite frankly. And in order to get myself out of this tight situation, I had a choice, really. One of them was to either lower the holiness of God in my own mind, make him anemic, sort of just a vague God that embraces everybody and doesn't really bear any teeth or have any power or any holiness. Or I had the choice to raise myself up and say, well, actually, I'm a pretty good person. And I wasn't willing to do either. I wasn't willing to bring God down, nor was I willing to prop myself up. So there I sat in this room, um, enlivened by the holiness of God, but depressed about my own life. And I needed a key. I needed a key in that moment. And the key wasn't stop being so serious. And the key wasn't you're an okay guy. And the key wasn't, well, just God isn't that worried. The key had to be something else. And I want to talk to you tonight about that very key. Is that all right? Let me pray. Father, you've liberated us from our sins. You've given us the key. Show us then the freedom that we have in Christ and guard it, guard our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Today we're talking about freedom, a key out. We all want to be free. No one wants to be oppressed, as far as I know. And if they do want to be oppressed, we say there's something wrong. I say it's basic to being human and that God has planted that thought in the human heart, the yearning to breathe free. No one wants to be imprisoned, shackled. No one wants to be under duress or held back. But it begs the question, what is freedom? Because there's a narrative of freedom that's existed for about 50 or 60 years in our society. Actually, it's been there since day dot, but let's just run with that for a moment. What is true freedom from the perspective of God, and how do you get it? Because, surprise, surprise, I have no shackles. And I live in Australia where I have no overlord. But having no shackles and no overlord 
is not a guarantee that I'm free. I may not be free. I may be profoundly tied in knots. And that's what we're going to explore for two weeks. So if this evokes anything in you uh, today, then I want you to take a communication card at the end of your pew and say, here's my question about what you're saying. And then pop it in the white box on your way out and I'll try to weave some of the things that you say and the questions you ask in the second half of this talk on freedom next week. But there is an intriguing exchange about freedom in John's gospel in chapter eight, and it goes like this. John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is saying, if you're with me, cling to what I say, if you follow me, you will be free. Now that's fascinating. You might say, but I am free. Look, no shackles. Look, I am free. Look, no overlord. Which, by the way, is exactly what they said to Jesus, John 8, 33. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And then Jesus reorders everything for them and for me. He gives me new glasses. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins is a slave. Right, and I hear that and I go, that's me, right? Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Then he goes on. Now a slave, that's me, has no permanent place in the family. I don't belong with God. But a son, that is Jesus, belongs to the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. We'll circle back to those words at the end of this message, but I'm hoping that some of you today find true freedom by finding true grace in the true Son, Jesus Christ. I'm hoping that some of you find the key. And we'll do that by searching Paul's letter to the Galatians, the third in the series in this six-chapter book, this ancient book of the Galatians. So my text today is Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5 on page 8 of your zines. Page 8. This matter, this meeting, arose because some false believers, writes Paul, had infiltrated our ranks. They'd turned up to church, taken one of the little um, orders of service, zines, and walked in and sat down because they're spying on the communities of Christ that Paul had founded. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. They wanted to see where the shackles had come off, why there were, there were people with so much joy, so much hope, so much happiness, so much possibility of love. And they were like, no, nah, let's find a way to put the shackles back on, to make us slaves. Some came to see just how liberated we are. But Paul says, verse 5, we did not give in to those false believers. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel, the Christian message, might be preserved for you. We didn't yield. So, he writes, so you'd know the truth and the truth will set you free. So whatever else you understand about Galatians and about the Bible and about the New Testament, 
In the New Testament, Paul is arguing for a kind of freedom that comes with the gospel, and it is enviable. So four questions that are printed on page nine of your zines. Number one, what is the freedom we have? What is it? Secondly, how do we get it? Thirdly, how do we keep it? And fourthly, how do we share it? Too good to not share. What is the freedom? How do we get it? How do we keep it? And how do we share it? So firstly, what is the freedom we have? That's in verse four. Well, it's this. It's that God no longer holds those in Christ accountable for their sin. There's my key. He upholds it. He believes in it. He's holy. He knows what I'm like, broken, willful, sinner. Right? And yet he doesn't hold me accountable for my sin. He showers grace upon me through Christ Jesus. In other words, he's taken the shackles off, the shackles I deserve. In the 18th century, Charles Wesley, the preacher and hymn writer, speaks about his conversion this way. He says to God, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. Right? God's, God reached into my life and I woke up and the dungeon was flame with light. It's a metaphor for his life, right? He says, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Loved, see, forgiven, justified, right with God, full of hope, full of joy. God could have held me accountable. He could have sent me to the dungeon, right? He could have sent me to hell, sure, but he doesn't. Instead, he deals with my sin in Christ, and he embraces me and brings me home, just like the father did to the prodigal son. God then is full of grace for those in Christ Jesus. So grace is amazing. Grace makes all the difference. Grace liberates. It liberates me from so much. It liberates me for, from the just punishment for my sin. It liberates me from the fear of death. It liberates me from the fear of others. It liberates me from the approval of others. That's right here in this text today. Grace is beautiful. I was reading about George V this week, as you do. Uh, George V was the king of the United Kingdom from 1910 to 1936. From what I can tell, he was a tough man, hard man, tough on his own son, for example, George VI, who's the father of our uh, Queen Elizabeth. That was a reference statement, not a Republican statement, by the way. George VI, 1910 to 1936, showed grace to his daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, whom we know as the Queen Mum. He had a soft spot for her, his new daughter-in-law. King George was a stickler for punctuality. And whenever anybody was late to a dinner, he would roast the person who was late. But when Elizabeth was late, when his daughter-in-law was late, he'd say to all his guests, it's okay, we must have started 10 minutes early. See, that's grace. Can you see how that would liberate Elizabeth? Done the wrong thing? And let her know that to this father-in-law. She was loved. Grace is a particular form of love. It's when you're loved despite what you do. I've been telling the marriage, the wedding, the marriage preparation class, grace is when you're loved at the bottom. So there's on one level you can't fall from grace because how can you fall from the bottom? I'm, I love you even though you're at the bottom 
Actually, there's a way to fall from grace. I'll tell you how in a moment. There's a stack of ways that King George the Fifth is different to God, and his little comment to Elizabeth is very different from God's grace in Christ Jesus, wrought through the death of his son on the cross, and he's showering me with grace, not just for being late, for being, but for being a genuine sinner. But I tell you that story about George VI, just to give you an echo, um, a concrete echo of what God's grace might look like, treating you other than you deserve. And if you live in the grace of Christ, if you believe the gospel, you find yourself free, loved, liberated. It's why Paul wrote Galatians 1 verse 1 and 2 and 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. But we come to this grace with a particular form for non-Jewish believers in Jesus. This grace came in a particular form to Gentile believers. Now stay with me here. God made promises to Abraham to save the whole world. He knew the whole world had gone to pot and it had rejected him. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the stories of the Gospels, I'm the prostitute. That's who I am. And God knew it. So he formed little Israel and said, through you I'll redeem the world, I'll free the world. And so like a father, God took little Israel by the hand and he showed them his heart and he taught them right from wrong, thankfully. And he punished and forgave death and resurrection, their sins, to show them his heart. He showed them his grace. He also showed them how to be distinctive. He gave them not only moral laws to show that they must be ethically different to the pagan nations around them. For example, thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? There's a command. But he also gave them ceremonial laws to show that they must be ethnically different to the nations around them. Not just ethically different, but ethnically different. And in particular, you read the Old Testament, read pages, pages and pages of it. That meant certain rituals about sacrificing lambs for sin. It meant circumcising your boys and only your boys as a sign of the covenant. Awkward, I know. Not eating pork or prawns, certain foods. Certain fabrics couldn't be worn. It meant that you couldn't eat with Gentiles or touch a dead body or come into contact with blood. Each time you would be declared by God to be unclean and had to do certain things to reapproach God. They're trapped in a room looking for a key. They had to be kosher. These are works of the law and Paul says, by these works, no one will be right with God. And that's because after Jesus came, the message that you could be right with God by faith alone and not by these works of the law, he started to catch on, not because it was trendy, it's not just because God had lowered the bar, but rather because God had always intended it to be so, that faith expressing itself through love is in fact a way to connect with both God, faith alone, and the world around you. Less laws, less Torah, uh, more main point, trust God. Paul himself had dramatically met God. We learned that last week. He was a full-on Jew. He met Jesus as an adult. And by the way, do not ever think that now that I'm 32 that I can't become a follower of Jesus or whatever you are. 
He met Jesus and he went straight to non-Jews to tell them about the grace of God, just like Jesus did in that, in that gospel reading there where he goes to the Greek woman born of Syrophoenicia, region of Tyre and Sidon. The, the, the woman, you know, with such faith, she says, you know, I'm happy to be a dog if I get to receive the things that you have for the world. And Jesus says, for such, a, such faith, you know. And uh, the man too, and Paul um, knew this, it was revealed to him by God, and so he went to Turkey and to parts of Asia and Europe and, uh, and, uh, and the Middle East, and he said to people, it's time to trust God. It's time to become a disciple of Jesus and learn from him, hold to his teaching, cling to him, believe, and then you can be right with God. And that's what they did. They became Christians all over the world and not through Jewish ceremonial laws or customs. This was Paul's gospel. That's what he said. But he also specifically said to non-Jews, you don't have to follow the ceremonial laws. You are free. Go ahead and eat that prawn wrapped in bacon, that rabbi's nightmare. It's yours. Take it. Enjoy it. When you duck home and get that bacon and cheeseburger. Please be free, said Paul. Just trust Christ. And by the way, you don't have to circumcise your boys as a sign of the covenant. But the moral law and the ceremonial laws in the end are fulfilled in Jesus. He forgave my sin. He was the distinct one from the nations around him. In the end, he did the work for me, and so now you are free. But a particular kind of liberation that we'll learn about, the freedom that we have in Christ. So there it is. That's the freedom. Joy, grace, sins forgiven, hope, etc. How do we get it? Verses 1 through 3. And the answer is, it was God's idea. It was his plan all along, and he secured it through Jesus. That's it. Galatians 2 starts in the middle of a point Paul is making started last week where he says, I became a Christian and I went right out and preached that you could be right with God without works of the law, just by grace alone, and non-Jews became followers of Jesus Christ. He didn't check with the institution. He didn't get a rubber stamp. He didn't go to the comms department to make sure that we were sort of all on the same message. That's not how the gospel went throughout, lit throughout the world by an organized communication method. This was from God and people were believing he says, after three years I went to Jerusalem and everyone said, thumbs up. What you're saying to non-Jews is bang on. And then in Galatians 2 verse 14, three years went up to Jerusalem. Then 14 years later, chapter 2 verse 1, I went up to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. Now, why is that important? Well, Titus was not Jewish, therefore not circumcised. Which, by the way, you know, poor Titus, for 2,000 years, people know his particular situations. It's very awkward, really. Um, you never find, you know, yet not even Titus compelled to be circumcised. You never find that at a poster at Kurong, do you? It's just not one of those things. He says, verse 2, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them the message that I preached among the non-Jews. I wanted to be sure that I had not been running or had run my race in vain. I wasn't looking for institutional support. I just wanted to know if I'd been on the right track. And here it is, verse 3, the proof. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. There it is. You could be a Christian without following the law of Moses. And everyone was agreeing that this was from God. And how did they get it? And the answer is, it wasn't a plan of the Jews to lower the bar of faith 
to sort of diversify their religion to non-Jews. And it wasn't just non-Jews going all soft and liberal. Yeah, it's in the Bible, but we don't really care about it. No, God always intended for the message to go out in this way. All those laws had a purpose then, and they are fulfilled now, and you keep them insofar as you keep the fulfillment of them. And the main thing, of course, is to believe in Jesus in a powerful, distinctive, transformative way. And because Paul was preaching that message, Gentiles believed. And so they were right with God. God said, you're right with me. Thirdly, how do we keep it? Verses four and five. And the answer is you've got to stand firm in the grace of God. You've got to fight for it. I'm telling you now, you've got to fight for grace. Verse five, we had all this pressure, all this fear, all this conformity. We did not give in to them for a moment, says Paul, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We didn't give in. I became a grace junkie when I got that key out of that door, which neither lowered the holiness of God nor lifted me up to a place I didn't need to be. I bowed down and God lifted me up and he set me out because of the grace of God. And I became a grace junkie and I became addicted to grace. I still am addicted to grace. By the way, wouldn't it be great to be addicted to grace and not those other things you're addicted to? Wouldn't it be great if your, your appeal, your drive towards grace actually spoke to the addictions you have? We must remain grace junkies, firm that a person is right with God only by grace. But it's not easy. Our whole lives, our bodies, our souls, they crave for two equal and opposite things. We crave to be loved, divinely loved, with a hope, right? At the same time, we don't really want to come up against God. We don't want to be locked in that room with the truth about the holiness of God. And so we dial God down and make him anemic. We have two things that our body craves. One, to be loved divinely, but we also crave that we could be acceptable to God for just one or two religious things. Just do this and God will tick me off the list. Just do that and you know, I'll be better than most people. Then I'll be right with God and can sort of go about my life. Others crave control. <laughs> and so they infiltrate the ranks of people who are free and they say, if you do this just one thing or that, you'll be doing the right thing and then I'll give you the thumbs up. But it's all about control in the end. Paul says they're zealous but only to win you over for themselves. And then Paul says, you know, once you got sucked into the control of others, what's happened to all your joy? What's happened to all your blessedness towards me? You used to be happy. What's more, we live in a transactional world, and this is about capitalism, really, although I'm not here to criticize it. Um, but we do live in a transactional world. You know, you do well at work, you get rewarded. You do this, you get that. If you don't do this, you get punished. You get excluded. So we live in a world stripped of grace, but grace from God is endless, and it frees, and it liberates. But it's harder than you think to stay strong in the grace of God, and that's one of the key messages in Galatians. I'll tell you why. If you're a good person, or you see yourself as a good person, if you're morally sensitive, if you're prone to listen to elders or do what people say, if you're a person who's sensitive to traditional cultures, you know, they, may, you know, they, they told me I should do it. Then under those circumstances, you want to believe people. You want to please people. You want to do what they say. You want to give in. You feel the pressure. But Paul says, we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Because if you give in to these works of the law, 
then the next group are going to hear that you've got to believe in Jesus and get your boys circumcised. You've got to do this or that to tick, tick, tick it off the list. My favourite is chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Christ, I ripped off the chains. Why are you picking up the chains again and trying to clunk them back on your wrists and finding a key to lock yourself up again? Forget it. Don't get circumcised. In fact, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 2, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Because you'll have said to God, oh, your grace wasn't enough. You know, it had to be this other thing too. So fourth and finally, how do we share it? Verses 6 through 10, how do we share it? Well, three things. First, don't add to grace. Don't add to grace. In verse 6, Paul writes, as for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. God doesn't look at the face. Those apostles, James, John, Peter, they added nothing to my message. They added nothing to my message. It's a strange little moment. Paul is threading an argument here. The message is from God, so nobody can rubber stamp it. But since it's from God, you'd expect others to agree. So he says, as for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God is not so favoritism. I didn't go looking for a rubber stamp. And yet, they added nothing to my message. They added nothing to my message. See that? They added nothing to my message. It was complete. Don't ever add to grace. Plus this box you've got to tick over here. Get clear the main message in your own mind and heart and don't let anyone pressure you make you afraid Chapter 5, verse 4, Paul writes, You who are trying to be justified by Torah, law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And I've battled with this, by the way, because I deeply believe you can't fall from grace since grace is being loved at the bottom. But as we bow down, he lifts us up in his grace. You see that? You've got to look at, I'm using hand gestures. Do you like that? If grace is when you loved at the bottom, loved as a sinner, when when we were still sinners, Christ died for me. This is how God demonstrated his love for me. But when we bow down, he lifts us up. He doesn't say, oh, you're now a good person. He says, you're now a lifted up saint, loved one. To fall from grace, then, is not to become a better person. Like our media says, oh, they're in such a high position and they fell from grace. And I'm like, do you know what grace is? The only way you can fall from grace is when you're at the bottom and lift it up and then you decide, actually, I need to add a little bit more. Chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That's not the point. Get your boys circumcised, don't get them circumcised. Not the point. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So firstly, don't add to it. Secondly, work out then what freedom means for how you're going to live your life, how you're going to do your life. Because our culture has been, since the 1950s, maybe from day dot, but since the 1950s, freedom is when you do what you want, when you want, and how you want to do it. And anybody who comes along and says to you um, anything about responsibility, you say, hey man, I'm rejecting you, I'm rejecting that. Freedom has become in many ways free from responsibility Although it's fair to say that I think Gen Y and the millennials have in part rejected that approach to life. Thank you. Thank you. I've been listening to clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson, controversial. He had a conversation with former 
Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, it's on YouTube and I listened to it, where he says this, he says, true freedom is not that you throw off any shackle. True freedom is not when you say, oh, someone told me to do something, well, stuff them. True freedom is not being free from responsibility, but rather, true freedom is being able to choose which burden you'll carry. True freedom is being able to choose which burden you'll carry. Pick up some responsibility and do it. And in Galatians, Paul tells you, if you're in Christ, the kind of burdens to carry. Chapter 6, verse 2, carry each other's burdens. Do it freely, joyfully, not under duress. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You fulfill the Torah, the law of Christ. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 13. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see how this is a free outworking of the main point. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love. And the third thing is to let that message get out to the world, fill the city, with no burdens attached. Just um, choosing the responsibility that comes from a transformed life in the Spirit because you're completely and fully divinely loved and justified and right with God and forgiven. You've got a key, you've got the grace of God, and you get on with life. Let it get out. Verses 9 and 10, so interesting. James, Peter, John, they gave us the right hand of fellowship. They recognized the grace that was given to me, and they agreed that we should, go, we should keep going to the Gentiles and that they should go to the circumcised, the Jews. They agreed, let's divide the wall up a little bit. I'll keep speaking to Jews. You keep speaking to Gentiles. Thumbs up. All that they asked was that we continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. You just had to remember the poor in Jerusalem, which is a burden I gladly was willing to pick up because I'm free and I know which burdens I need to carry. So we need to let missionaries get on with their job as long as their job is not burdening people with works of the law, but preaching grace. Let me circle back. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Here's my hand up. Don't be fooled, by the way, by your lack of chains. Don't be fooled by the absence of overlords. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. And, you know, it's amazing that we can't stop ourselves from doing things that we want to stop. Or do things, we find it hard to do things we want to do, let alone what God wants us to do. Jesus says a slave is not normally welcome in a home. A slave has no permanent place in the family. So how do you find a permanent place in the family? What do you do? Well, you look to the son, a son that belongs to the family of God forever. Listen to Jesus. Hold to his teaching. Believe in his name. Become his disciple. Choose the freedom that comes from him. Know what it is to be divinely loved and given a hope, given his spirit, and free to pick up burdens, the burdens of others, to love in extraordinary ways. Why? Because if the sun sets you free, that's true freedom. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, grace is when we're loved at the bottom, but we've bowed down and you've lifted us up. You've shown us your grace. You've forgiven us our sins. You've sent Christ to die. His blood on the cross is the, the thing needed for me to front 
to a holy God and yet find myself embraced, loved, forgiven, and given a hope and power, your spirit. So tonight I choose freedom in Christ. Tonight I choose him. Tonight my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I followed you. Help us to follow you, Father, for Christ's sake. Amen.